Um, welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. Um, I am Zani, and I will be talking to a very, very distinguished uh, South African uh, journalist of Indian descent, uh, Imran Ghata. Uh, some of you have uh, seen his, uh, um, you know, flagship um, TIT World Newsmaker show. Um, may have also seen him on the Al Jazeera Inside Story stream and others. And he's a um, relatively young journalist, uh, you know, born only around 1980s, early 80s, I must say. Um, Award-winning novelist with his uh, first uh, debut uh, novel, The Lion, I'm sorry, uh, The Thunder That Rose. Um, and also he has covered um, sports for premier um, sports um, publications or TV in, in South Africa has lived in uh, San Francisco, Washington, DC, New York, Doha, uh, Istanbul, um, Kuala Lumpur, and uh, is very, very cosmopolitan. And uh, he will be um, sharing his experience uh, growing up in the final days of the apartheid in South Africa. Um, he will also shed light on his understanding of um, you know, layers of racism uh, across the world uh, on different continents where he has lived and worked uh, substantively. And he's been a journalist for the last uh, you know, uh, uh, 20, 25 years. And, and I'm very privileged uh, to have uh, Imran. Uh, he is taking a long break writing his uh, second novel uh, back in Joburg, uh, where he was educated at the University of Witt, um, uh, specialized in, in, in drama, media, and he has always loved uh, politics, um, the discussion, and uh, you know, pu- uh, pu- public affairs. Um, uh, welcome, Imran. Um, let me just th- throw you um, uh, the first question. Can you tell us about, um, you know, the, your interest in, the, you know, identity, one of your um, uh, fictional characters, um, explore or attempt to um, confront uh, uh, the issues of identity, because you, you, your family has been in South Africa for over, uh, you know, a hundred years or so, and you're of Indian descent uh, from a Gujarati Muslim background, and Gandhi was also um, you know, of similar background, lived and uh, worked and, um, you know, uh, for, for the rights of Indians, Indian laborers in South Africa. So th- tell us about what it's like living under apartheid regime as, uh, you know, its, its days are coming to an end. Uh, thanks, Zani. It's good to be on the other end of this. And... Uh... I'm glad you're not taking, taking revenge on me for, for asking you difficult questions <laughs> during the program. <laughs> um, this, you know, I feel, I feel fortunate that I lived uh, during the, the back end of, of apartheid. Others had it far worse. Others who were um, especially black and, and, and other racial categories had it worse than those of Indian descent. People of Indian descent were politically disenfranchised. Yes, they were very low on the tier during apartheid, but economically they tended to be doing a bit better in their little bubbles and and ghettos. Um, Yeah, it was a surreal society to grow up in. Um, We we classified everything racially, if not by law, but even culturally. In every interaction, you you needed to mention the race of the person that you interacted with. 
And with that came a lot of stereotypes related to, to races. Um, you, you grew up with all of that stuff. And even if it wasn't shoved down your throat by your parents or your immediate family, it was a context within which you grew up that just made everything really pathological and not healthy. And so, you know, this is, this is so, I'll give you a little example. My, my seven-year-old daughter, Lamise, uh, the other day I was watching a James Baldwin interview and I I mean, this is the, uh, uh, the American civil rights writer, the African-American yes. James Baldwin. Yes. And so he was having a chat with Nikki Giovanni in 1971. It's available on YouTube. It's a really fantastic chat. And so I was watching this. And so my, my seven-year-old daughter is, um, she's used to me reading his books and seeing his face, I guess, on, on some of the books and uh, seeing me watch some of his YouTube videos. And so she comes, she comes around, she looks at the screen. She's like, oh, there's the, there's the super big eye guy again. And then she walks away, right? Because James Baldwin has this extremely you know, large eyes, right? Yeah. And you know, this, this is a tiny detail, but I think it's very relevant. Even if my intentions were absolutely pure as a seven-year-old growing up in South Africa, in, if I had to stumble upon, I mean, there was no YouTube back then, but if I had to stumble upon my father interacting with an image of someone like James Baldwin over and over, I probably would have described him with something related to him being black, like something right. would have related to his blackness, you know? So like, um, so it was just that kind of like, it was a reminder that, you know, the, the society that we grew up in, everything was, was, was seen through race. All the power dynamics were seen through race. White people were, were kind of given this, um, white people had this extraordinary power over us psychologically as well. Um, they were, they were automatically associated with, with privilege, with wealth, with being lucky, with being better looking, um, living in nicer areas. And that's a lot to disentangle yourself from just psychologically, even if laws change when you're a teenager. Um, so the first time I properly interacted with, with white people was when I went to high school and things were opening up. And, you know, we had this weird dance that was going on with us, you know, where you're second guessing each other and you're figuring each other out. Um, black, white, Indian, uh, mixed race in South Africa. It's called colored, but it's not offensive in that context. So uh, Malay. So it, it, it's something that stays with you uh, throughout and you're cognizant of it. You don't want it to, to be a means of a psychological projection in everything you do in your life but you cannot deny your upbringing and you cannot deny that then you have a choice. You can decide that that upbringing and all that inequality and injustice and the absurdity of it all. I mean, during apartheid, there were even these, there were these laws that were, for example, when, when the Japanese government was doing, was doing business with the apartheid government, Although the, the Japanese were classified as um, categorized as honorary whites, you know they have, they can go to the beaches. Exactly, where exactly. So, exactly. So, so there, there you have the absurdity of it all, right? So, so you have this utterly inhumane and completely nuts system where oh, we're doing business with Japan. Oh shit, what are we gonna do? Uh, okay, let's give them you know honorary white certificates. So then you have this racist apartheid policeman. He's like, hey, you Chinese, come here. And then it's like, no, oh, I'm Japanese. Here's my certificate. Oh my god. So you you kind of you 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 can you know you can decide that that 
pathological system that you grew up in can be something that you project on onto elsewhere and you just you know you you live your life as a as a racist or you you decide that there are parallels elsewhere and you start to see the parallels elsewhere and you you figure out that maybe you should do something about it and so you mentioned gandhi at the top it's something that's very difficult for for a lot of people to reckon with whether it is indians in india or south african indians or south africans in general gandhi might have helped liberate india gandhi might have been a victim of oppression by white people who kicked him off a train and who treated him badly and who imprisoned him and so on but the reality is in the context of south africa specifically he fought only for the rights of indians he even said so very clearly in his writing to jan smuts and others no i'm just i'm just fighting for my community and he was also a clear and blatant racist right And also yeah, he, he left a trail he left a, a trail yeah. of extremely disparaging um writings um with yeah. regards to the yeah. um uh you know the black south africans you know i mean so that for yeah. us is is really yeah. shocking because you know i'm i'm from burma yeah. and uh, mahatma gandhi you know mm-hmm. always like a gandhi ji you know and um that we he yeah, visited yeah. Uh, my town in mandalay uh, he was in uh, in rangoon and there was a lot of interactions between indian uh, you know progressive intellectuals communists uh, liberals what not with the burmese you know during the anti colonial period because we were fighting against a common oppressor and oppressive colonial rule in india mm-hmm. and burma and uh, you know it only um, you know uh, I, uh, did i leave burma i i came to uh, know how uh, essentially despicable uh, gandhi's uh, racist uh, views towards the africans yeah. and and uh, yeah. th- so is it uh, something that um, the indian community in um, south africa uh, is uh, uh, aware of and uh, um, and what what type of uh, legacy did uh, gandhi left for you know uh, the indian community you know that's now i would think uh, quite well integrated into south african uh, political and um, societal context he's still seen largely positively and again you must remember i've not lived in south africa for you know 14 years right so i need to be be conscious of that constantly but in terms of our upbringing in terms of the things we learned at school and and the things we learned at school were a part of the big shift where we went from a racist history to a more inclusive history so we were experiencing that shift as as i was growing up but in general within the indian community and within within um the um the the, the south african um uh, figures or historical figures that are deemed you know positive figures he's he's one of them right there's a statue of him no well, a couple of statues of him i think in south africa so with that in mind people have not really interrogated this idea of gandhi being being racist and and this is something that has been picked up on by the the militant uh left wing uh eff group with the red berets and so on and others who are saying well you know these because then they a lot of them can use it and expand on it unfairly and say well you know indians have always been racist indians were never a part of us indians were just like whites which is not true but it's if you don't if you don't face up to this stuff other people are going to take it 
and they're going to run with it, right? So, so Gandhi is kind of in this weird, you know, um, contested, no, he's beginning to be contested. Right, right. Yeah, he's still part of the pantheon. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, in, in Ghana, I think at the University of Ghana, his uh, statue was uh, removed. Uh, you must be aware of that incident. You know, the, the students, uh, the Africans, yeah, yeah. you know, the Ghanaians, Ghanaians yeah. uh, d demanded that the statue be removed and, and the administration comply with the, uh, you know, activist demand. So it's gone. Yeah. And so obviously um, that we have, um, you know, Gandhian uh, statues in uh, uh, Geneva, you know, uh, the, the uh, we have um, the gun, a statue of Gandhi in um, the at the Parliament Square in uh, London, and so mm -hmm. the uh, you know now with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, uh, 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 you know having a major impact on uh, essentially the you know the our consciousness. Uh, the, you know, I mean now like uh, even the Premier League in in, in UK, uh, the, the players are taking the knee. And uh, the, you know every single yeah. game that um, has um, uh, has the image of every single player taking the knee uh, before the, the game starts. Yeah. So that is a, you know a very very significant shift. And so if we are going to fight um, racisms of all forms or in all manifestations, I I don't think you know uh, Gandhi. Uh, would be removed from the target list. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he, I mean, he should be. And, and this is the thing, right? People don't like complexity. They like, no. I mean, two things can be true at the same time. Gandhi helped liberate India, but he was a racist. And he had, I mean, never mind the issues of like young girls and sleeping, you know, testing yeah. his willpower while sleeping yeah, exactly. with teenage girls yeah, the, and all that yeah, stuff, right? His nieces. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> profoundly fucking sick things going on there, right? Objectively speaking. Um, Winston Churchill, yes, he helped defeat the Nazis. Great wartime leader. Also a racist. Reality. I'm sorry it makes you feel bad, but this yeah. is the reality, right? Stalin helped defeat the Nazis. Also a damn monster, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who killed millions of his own people. And so Gandhi, in this context, it's very difficult, especially with social media and, and, and the way people communicate with each other these days. It's very difficult to kind of separate out these things and, and, and tease out fact and context because yes, we need to talk about Gandhi. It's important, but we're not saying Gandhi is Hitler. We're saying Gandhi had a lot of terrible things mixed into all the good things. And yes, even though a, a large amount of people might want to take down his statue, Gandhi is also not Cecil John Rhodes, who wielded power in such a way that he, I mean, he, he messed up the lives of not only Black people within his generation, but their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. That man wielded power in a colonial sense, in a business sense, in a political sense that was unheard of. He ethnically cleansed people, he was genocidal. We're not saying Gandhi is Cecil John Rhodes, but we're saying we need to talk about Gandhi. And so it's very difficult to kind of have these conversations where you can speak clearly about these things and also put it into the right context, right? Um, without people saying, well, you're either just part of a mob that just wants to destroy history or, <laughs> or, um, or, or saying that you're defending 
some some kind of you know monster right um you need to have honest conversations about these people's uh, yes. legacies or else we'll never move forward yeah just hold it there um because you i mean i'm glad you brought up uh, Cecil Rhodes uh, but you know you um you must be aware that um the Oriel College at Oxford, um, you know, the uh, the college administration decided to remove um, Cecil Rhodes' um, right. a statue from the college facade, you know, on on the um, on on the high street in in Oxford, and um, I mean that's after having held out uh, for the last four or five months, uh, sorry, years, yes, against the uh, grassroots demands from students and faculty, more enlightened than the others. Uh, demanding that the uh, road statue should be removed, yeah, and 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 also like I think like uh, people say like you know that we we must not erase history, we must not disown our own history and sanitize them, and 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 there are others who say, look, you know, uh, the uh, destruction and removal of statues is history making and has always been a part of history going back all right. the way to persia and then essentially the destruction of these statues uh, you know uh, means uh, you know uh, um, that uh, the, the the power and consciousness are shifting and and, and uh, that's what it is it is history making it is not history erasure or destruction right. can i get your um, um the thoughts on how you responded to the news, because uh, this was well, you know, uh, news when Cecil Rhodes' uh, statue was removed, uh, or at least like uh, the uh, Col um, you know, Edward Colston statue, the slave owner right. statue, uh, was removed from the uh, uh, from this uh, the square in uh, Bristol. How you know the, because you're right in the middle of um, you know Southern Africa. And we oh. talk about like a Gandhi statue, Gandhi's yeah. legacy, and then and then like Cecil Rhodes, and then obviously slavery. Yeah. Um, how, how did you feel that personally? You know, I think with each one, interestingly enough, I've had a different um, view. Sometimes it's been a bit of a cocktail of emotions. Sometimes I found myself overwhelmingly supporting it. Sometimes I found, well, mm, maybe. I don't know about this one. And that in itself is revealing to me, right? So, I mean, this, if you'll allow me, I kind of, I'll, I'll give you a bit of background to this. One of the things that I, I find is a waste of time and a waste of resources is, for example, in terms of priorities in South Africa, where I come from, there are times when the new um, government, which has been in, in power for, what, 26 years now, right? There are times when you have such pressing needs of poverty, of inequality, of terrible injustice. There are times when it is decided that the most important thing for us to do today is to rename some fucking street and remove <laughs> some, you know, uh, some old racist name from it, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. And we need to, you know, put a liberation hero's name on there. Uh, but maybe that will cost $20 million. Now, there's a part of me that's like, listen, when you're doing it as a government, you need to prioritize. How about we deal with the street names later, but let's make sure people aren't living in shacks. You know, let's make sure people have running water and electricity, right? So that's, that's the one aspect to this. The other aspect to this is that when it comes to someone like Colston, it's like overwhelmingly, my first instinct is, I can't believe that there was a statue of him. Exactly. Right? I, didn't, I didn't know who he was, actually. I didn't, like, and, and this is the irony as well, is when people are like, 
oh my god how how will we know history i had to google him so clearly, yeah, yeah. Like, of his, course, statue, of <laughs> his statue didn't educate me, right? I'm not no. the most stupid person on earth, right? And clearly, I didn't know who this guy was. And then when I found out, I thought, well, it's, it's bizarre that it's endured until this moment in time. And then with, with someone like Rhodes, I, I, I believe it's integral for us to educate people about this man's legacy, you know, in terms of what he's done throughout the world. Right. I don't necessarily believe that a statue is the way to educate, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that if people were comfortable with the fact that Rhodes' statue was up there and there was, a, there was a plaque that said this was a bad guy who did blah, 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 right, blah. Right, right. I, I think personally I would be okay with it. But if you have critical mass of people going, this offends us, this upsets us, because this man was the ultimate evil and 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 people like him are responsible for so much injustice in this world we need to tear it down then how much more democratic can that be right it's it's like when when two million people march against the iraq war that's democracy they're telling you we don't want you to do it but you're right. like, no, no 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 you people don't know any better so there's this bizarre in western liberal democracies there's this disregard for people expressing that they want it to come down. And so again, I, I'd always like sort of err towards trying to figure out what the vast majority of people in that context think about that thing. And if they right. want to take it down, I would support it, right? But you, you have this very knee-jerk kind of recoiling of, and this moralizing, sanctimonious moralizing. Oh my God, this is like cultural revolution. This is like, you know, fucking, you know, insanity, anarchy. We're losing our civilization. It's all nonsense. Yeah. It's all nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, this is quite interesting because, um, you know, you, you, you are from the country that has uh, consciously designed truth and reconciliation process you know uh, the right. the past the past um, you know deeds were processed uh, to the extent possible through this uh, commission but but we are here i'm i'm, I'm in britain and as a um, as a person who came from a former british colony of burma and and uh, the, the shocking thing i've got 11 year old girl and uh, who uh, the, with her mother's um, her mom's english her mom's help um, uh, you know, embarked on this, uh, you know, personal project uh, intellectually, like she calls it, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the learning from her mother, um, uh, decolonizing her own, you know, uh, year six curriculum. You know, I, I did a, um, a 10 minutes <clears throat> a little podcast with her and she was saying that we never, we, you know, we, we never learned anything that uh, Britain did bad to the world. It's always Britain's good, white people are good, uh, Churchill's a great guy. Yeah? That, and then uh, there are civil wars and then uh, we give the world a parliamentary democracy. Yeah? And then so, so we have a situation where, um, you know, the, uh, the people like Chris Patton and others, Oxford Chancellor and a former governor or the last governor of Hong Kong, are uh, arguing that, uh, the, you know, if if these statues are good for uh, Nelson Mandela, it's good for us. You know, basically, uh, Mandela, Mandela came to the Rhodes House at Oxford University, and the Rhodes Trust was renamed renamed uh, Mandela Rhodes Trust. You know, and um, and so you know, there's a bit of a black washing there. You know, yeah, and it's a it's it's a, um, 
it's a straw man, right? Mandela was a statesman who had other, other priorities, right? He didn't yeah. need to pick fights with people. He needed to unify a country. And so again, they, they do this and it's a game. It's, it's a complete game. Well, I mean, like when he was coming yeah. to the Western, uh, you know, yeah. uh, countries and, uh, you know, right. the, the, making this a uh, victory lab as it were, yeah. you know, he didn't simply come for the reconciliation of South Africa. He came for a, a foreign investment. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So he knew, he knew like who, who not to, you know, basically, you know, like Mandela was feted and invited to Bill Gates's house. And then Bill Gates said, well, I'm going to give you a donate, you know, in quotes, uh, 500 million or 200 million US dollar to your foundation. Yeah. Yes. Of course, Man Mandela, uh, you know, as, as great a statesman as he was, um, he was also a politician. He knew of course, yeah. who not to offend, you know, like what mm. the sensibilities are. And so, um, that you mentioned about the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, putting a plague around, you know, these like uh, racist, controversial statues. Um, but, you know, the, the case against that argument is Nazi Germany or like the, the post-Nazi right. Germany. Right. Yeah, we don't, I mean, like you, I mean, you've been to Germany, um, the, you know, you, you go to Germany, you will not see a symbol of fascism or the uh, Nazi um, burst of Himmler or Goering or Eichmann or right. Hitler anywhere in Nazi. We don't need, but, but we are more informed about the Holocaust than most world's event without the help of any statue. Do you, you, know, know, do you know what I think, dude, this is what I think the difference is, right? Or this is where I think it comes from, where you have, again, uh, critical mass among the people to decide overwhelmingly left wing or right wing, although Germany is starting to uh, develop right. a lot of restless, you know, fringe, maybe not so fringe, uh, far right tendencies, which are worrying. I, I suspect, and again, I don't know, but my instincts tell me with places like, with places like Germany and places like Japan, you had this abject humiliation of themselves as well right. after what defeat. they support yeah after defeat and after what they had so enthusiastically supported for so long right, they, right. their grandparents their great grandparents had enthusiastically supported these things and then you have this abject humiliation right the japanese um having to you know hand over their country to the americans having their country nuked right firebombed the the the, the germans uh, uh being told rightfully you caused a fucking world war and you were responsible for millions of people dead and now again you know your country's going to be divide, uh, divided between the west and the soviets and so on and i think those cataclysmic um fruits of their um uh their, their basest desires came those chickens came home to roost and that was a that was a moment for them to say okay fresh start Right, and we just get rid of all this shit. And what, one of the problems with the West, as such, is that whether it's the UK, whether it's the French, they never experienced the kind of blowback or humiliation or whatever right. as a result of colonialism and, and that. Yeah, right? yeah, they, so they've never been they've the, never been held to account for any historical. Yeah, or and so they never wars. felt it. Yeah. No French person experienced the Algerian war on the streets of Paris on a large right, scale, right? Yeah. And so no, no Brit experienced 
the kind of blowback of colonialism. I mean, you can make a deeper argument of like, uh, you know, you get terrorism as a result of the Iraq war and all of that, but that's a, a different thing altogether. But I mean, you didn't actually have foreign troops in your country. You know, you didn't have tanks rolling through and saying, fuck you guys, you guys lost and we won, right? right? And I think a part of that abject humiliation of, of, of realizing that they chose the wrong side was that opportunity for like clearing the decks in a clean slate. And so, so the other Western countries don't have that. And you also have enough people who wrongly believe that colonialism was more positive than negative. Oh, we had some bad things. We killed a few people now and then, right? right, right, right. But they don't actually, they don't, they, they, as, as you say, your daughter is, is, is busy, you know, trying to decolonize the history that, that she's being taught and, and, and your wife is, is also, you know, discussing that with her. That's something that, that is shocking as it is in the year 2020 is something that's not being done. And so that's why you're still going to have lots of people within these countries kind of still a little kind of you know, complicated and twisted up about all of this stuff. Oh, but he, was he really that bad? No, yes, he was that bad. <laughs> right. And so people are not being educated about their own history, in, in my opinion. Yeah, but the, the, you know, the most shocking thing, um, you know, while, while we're on the... Uh, uh, the the uh, the failure of uh, uh, Western you know colonial uh, powers like uh, France or uh, uh, UK that never suffered defeat uh, to process its own of uh, their own histories you know what I mean I, it is it is actually it's a complete failure of the education um, system as such you know from right. kindergarten all the way to Oxford and Cambridge and 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 uh, University of London when you have um, Eton Oxford graduates, uh, you know, such as uh, David Cameron or the um, uh, Boris Johnson, saying that you know we must celebrate the empire, yeah, and and that just simply mean we, you know, these guys are saying that, you know, it, it the, you know, the uh, the policy induced famines in Beng uh, you know, in Bengal and other parts of India, or the um, slaughter massacres and the colonial genocides and land grab, uh, loot and theft. Oh. These things that we will call today crimes against humanity, you know, war crimes, genocide, you know, and you name it, every single grave crime in international law books, Britain had committed or violated. And then when you have these very, very poorly educated white men as prime ministers or ex-prime ministers, and I would say, you know, the top echelon of British society saying, you know, not simply that, uh, you know, British colonialism ha had some redeeming qualities or characteristics, but we must celebrate them, you know, don't denigrate or disparage Churchill. I mean, that is yeah. a complete and utter failure of an education system as such, you know. It, um, it, Absolutely. So, well, yeah. Totally. I mean, totally. And, and, the, the, and, and this complete uh, incongruity and befuddlement and bemusement with oh my god why do people hate us why do they why do they think negatively about us why do they have this you know why do they have this negative view of where i come from well nobody hates you for being you per se but what you represent especially if you're showing abject ignorance in terms of of your own history right this is not a long time ago um and so if you're if if you you know you kind of believe that you just sort of emerged out of the ground in a country with no that wasn't built on any inequality, any, any oppression, nothing was taken from anybody else in order to, to give you the kind of, you know, nice 
upbringing that you've had and even if it wasn't the best you you still grew up in a, in 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 some sort of relative uh, privilege right so i mean for me it's the history of the world it's uh merchant of venice right if you prick us do we not bleed if you tickle us do we not laugh if you poison us do we not die and if you wrong us do we not revenge right mm-hmm. so this can be something contemporary now right where with the rohingya it's yes of course i'm surprised that uh, arsa didn't emerge 10 years ago right i'm like it's it's a natural consequence of exactly. oppressing people but so now that's that's in a tangible sense like you know right now contempor- contemporarily but this idea that you can sort of change some laws or get out of a country and then a couple of decades down down the line as the people who still live in those countries are still experiencing the ripple effects of that or the legacy of that you can go but we've never done anything what are you talking about we have no historical role in any of these places that's just the third world i i grew up in a nice little place where i can go to starbucks and i have free healthcare and um, my life is good right so people people are being deliberately miseducated um maybe it's for national solidarity maybe it's so that people can just get up and go to work without hating themselves right but whatever it is it's not a good thing and i don't believe it's just in the former colonies as such it's um it's it's also in the new world right so or the so called new world um years ago i was covering a, a story um of uh, the mavi marmara if you remember where those those activists were trying to break the blockade on gaza and right. the israeli army jumped on the boat and uh, killed nine of them and uh you know it was a big international uh major story and so we were we were we were interviewing a lot of the activists and a lot of the people who had just experienced this terrible trauma trying to break this blockade of gaza and then seeing some of their friends and colleagues die spent about a week in israeli prison i think in bersheba and they were in istanbul i came from doha to istanbul they were in istanbul 10 years ago uh before they went back to their home countries and so interviewing a lot of them so so if you kind of imagine the mindset where a lot of them traumatized been through this experience they're generally activist types who you know want to whether it's because they're muslims and want to help their muslim brothers or they're kind of western lefties who want to help gazans whatever it is whatever their motivations people are traumatized and my team was filming interviews with them and i'll never forget and you know out of out of great respect i won't i won't name the two two team members of 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 mine who were with me but we got into the car after a day of a lot of uh stories of uh what had transpired on that boat and and in the israeli prisons in the days after and i remember my two colleagues one was australian and one was new zealander the one goes i'm just so glad i didn't grow up with all this hate i referring to the activists right i'm just so right. glad i didn't grow up with all this hate and all this baggage you know i'm glad i just grew up in a place without any of this because you know it's it's really horrible to carry so much hate right because you know some of the activists were like fuck israel or whatever yeah, right? of course. i mean like well more, yeah. more like a rage you know right, like a recent, re- recently michelle obama uh, you know in response to the black lives lives matter yeah. um they said um, to to the african american younger generation said don't you know don't ever feel bad or apologize right. for right. you know for being angry don't let anyone right. tell you like you are too angry there's no such thing exactly rage, and yeah of course and so now i mean you can you can actually not like these people you can criticize them but what i found fascinating is that you had two very educated guys so the one goes the new zealander says yeah i'm just so glad i didn't grow up in a place like this and then the australian goes yeah me too you know we grew up you know thinking 
seeing everybody as equal and without any of this hatred and stuff. And I said, guys, I'm going to say something that, that, that you're not going to like now. And I looked at them and I'm like, do you think you just emerged out of the ground in Australia and New Zealand? Like, look at you, you're white. Right. What happened to the native peoples in these lands? Like your ancestors killed most of them. Right. Like you, the, the peaceful society that you grew, grew up in is, uh, is based on the legacy of genocide. That doesn't mean like I should hate your country and it's not a democracy now. Right, and, right. You know, these are pretty good countries right now. But like failing to recognize that actually the reason you grew up without any problems is because y- y- your ancestors killed the majority of people that were there, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, like this is, how can you even say, I, I'm so glad I grew up in a place without any hate, right? And so it, it, uh, it made the rest of the, the day a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the tell, tell, I mean, th- this is a good segue uh, to move to um, uh, your professional work. Um, you know, you, you, have, uh, um, you have done over 600 interviews or, uh, you know, different episodes, you know, uh, uh, and, um, the, you know, that's a, a vast um, a quantity of, um, you know, e- experience and insights. You interviewed, um, you know, uh, the uh, heads of states, um, you know, rebel leaders. And you've been to different, um, you know, war or conflict um, situations. What did you pick up on the dynamics between... Um, you know, U.S. journalists are Western educated and um, the topics or the subjects or communities that you cover, you know, uh, the, 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 this is crucial because you mentioned about your Australian and New Zealand colleague, you know, when they approach the situation with a degree of repulsiveness or revulsion towards, you know, the, the rage that propelled the activists uh, to risk their lives, right. you know, they know that they're not screwing around with the, uh, you know, uh, that uh, nobody basically fucks around with the Israeli security forces. They knew what they were doing. They knew that, the, you know, that the, their lives are at risk and they went ahead and did it. You know, that, that the, you know, a degree of commitment, solidarity, the rage, the hate, everything. But, you know, they show absolutely zero understanding. And can you cover these events without, you know, having some kind of like a common reference to the to the subjects that you are covering, you know what I mean. Either empathy or the rage, you know. Like you you can't parachute yourself in as a white privileged uh, cameraman or journalist, and then say, "Hey, look, you know these like black people are just like you know uh, they're just looters, a- anarchists, and out of control right. crowd." You know, like too mad uh, from the from the community that you grew up in, white and privileged, and you know, like upper or upper middle class. Yeah. I, I think it's impossible, and maybe this is due to my upbringing, I don't know, but it was impossible for me not to want to understand why, even if an act was, was clearly wrong, right? So like whether it's an act of terrorism or it's an, you know, an, an act of a, a, a person. Let, let me give you an example. Let me, let me kind of give you a very contemporary example. Uh, and I don't want to make everything about Israel, Palestine, but there's something that, that piqued my interest uh, a couple of days ago. So there was this checkpoint uh, killing of this Palestinian uh, about two days ago, Ahmed Irakat. And because he's the 
the little cousin of Noura Erekat, who is a Rutgers professor and has quite a big pl- platform in the U.S. This is getting a lot of attention because she's saying, you know, the Israelis killed my, my baby cousin. And um, the IDF is, has released this footage uh, that looks like a car ramming attack, right? So, um, so there's kind of two narratives going on. On the one hand, you have this narrative, which is like, well, clearly he's a terrorist. He was ramming his car into a checkpoint and we killed him. You know, and that's, that's that. And on the other hand, you have people saying, he wouldn't do that. And uh, he was on his way to pick up his sister because it was a wedding that night and his own wedding was next week and he was 27 years old and he had his whole life ahead of him and whatever. Having watched the video, for me personally, it looks like it was a ramming attack, right? Like, I mean, his car was like slowing down one way and then he, he went for it. But what's interesting is that my first instinct is to go, what kind of society do you have where when you are going to pick up your sister to go to her wedding, you have to cross, you have to pass through a checkpoint, firstly, mm-hmm. right? You have to pass through a, a checkpoint with like six people with fucking guns, right? And what kind of society might you be growing up in that with your entire life ahead of you on a happy day, on your sister's wedding, when your own wedding is coming up in a week, you decide, fuck it, right? I'm going to take out a soldier or two. That's the heart of it for me. So it's like, I, I see the noise again on Twitter and nobody's actually asking the, the, the fundamental question. Why are there checkpoints? Yeah, exactly. Why would somebody want to do that at that point in time, right? And so uh, when I was in Ferguson uh, in, in 2014, I remember during one of the protests, one of the white uh, journalists, and I, and I mentioned his race because it's relevant in this context, because he, he came up to me while we were filming one of the protests um, uh, after the killing of Michael Brown. And he came up to me and very smugly said, well, you know, um, guess how many, uh, how many percent of these guys uh, voted in, in the last election? I mean, so Ferguson is predominantly African-American, but the prosecutor was white, the mayor is white, the majority of the police force was white and so on. And they had, you know, local elections, right? And he asked me, guess how many people, uh, how many percentage, what percentage of African-Americans voted in the last election? Um, so I shrugged my shoulders and said 12%. And later on, I would, I went and I checked and it was true. And my immediate answer, so for him, it was like, well, you know, these people complain, but they don't vote, right? Yeah, yeah. And for me... So it's their fault. It's their fault yeah, that you've got these white administrations. Yeah, my immediate reaction... Yeah, my, exactly. My immediate reaction was, how much do they fucking distrust this system exactly. that only 12% of them will vote, right? That shows you how little they care about law and order and justice in the society because they don't trust it. They don't believe in it, right? Well, the, like, the, so, the, the law yeah. and order was there, um, you know, uh, uh, essentially uh, intertwined with the uh, KKK. You know, that's a, right. a common understanding. You know, you take off your uniform and you go to the KKK club uh, to drink. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. sorry to interrupt. Yeah, okay. No, no, absolutely. So I think for me, it's always been that. And, and it's been a difficult thing. I mean, you've also seen, I've tried my very best when I've had you on the show as well to challenge you, but not just because because, well, you know, I've got to go 50-50. I've got you and you're on Mint. And you're on Mint is going, well, these are Bengalis. And, you know. And he was laugh- genocide- laughing at the mention of totally. rape. Yeah, yeah. And no, actually, the genocide is against us. You know, this complete, you know, insanity. But I have to, I mean, this is just against everything that's empirically verified by multiple organizations, right? I mean, even, even things that Aung San Suu Kyi say, well, if you look only 50%, uh, more than 50% of, yeah. of, of the Rohingya villages are still intact. 
Right. What the fuck? Fifty percent are burned down. Like exactly, you know, exactly. In, in Hollywood movies, when in Hollywood movies, when fifty percent of the place is burned down, it's usually like the apocalypse, right? So, right, right. So it's like, so you have that going on. But I also know that it's my duty if I challenge you, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the best out of your argument. So I'm not doing it. And th- and sometimes I failed. Sometimes you know, it's sometimes I've done better than at other times. I knew it was my responsibility. I had a responsibility to the facts and I had the responsibility to people, right? Oh. To, to the people who are affected by this. And so that whole like fairness doctrine of like 50-50, oh no, you, you must give two minutes airtime here and two minutes airtime here. I think that's all nonsense. It's bullshit. What I believe is that you, you look at the evidence and you ask critical questions related to that evidence and you right. give everybody a fair chance to speak. And right. if... No, on Mint is going to say, no, the genocide is against us. I'm going to tell him, well, this is absurd and this is insane. How can, where's your proof for this? But on the other hand, in the context of a discussion of something like Arsa, I'm not doing a gotcha where I'm like, ah, oh, but you know, Zani, oh, you guys also do all sorts of shit, right? No, right, it's, right. okay, Zani, Arsa also, you know, blew up 12 border guards. Right. Um, is it wrong? You know, I have to, you know, and yeah, I have to course, get, your, get your reaction yeah. from that because it gives you the opportunity to explain yourself as well. Right. So I think for me, I've always, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been called a lot of things from, from many people, but I've, I felt that the, the idea of, you know, the fairness doctrine, which was implemented uh, in, in the U.S. in 49, and even though it was repealed later on in the 90s, I think, that became a staple of journalism, really, because fa- it, was, it was a law that you have to give equal airtime to everybody, right? And I think that, that became built into um, how these things are said and, and done from the issues that we're talking about, human rights, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, major David and Goliath sort of systems, also to things like climate change, where like, listen, man, 95% of science or 97% of scientists are saying this thing's a problem. Maybe we should trust them, you know, and like, we can't just go some, some wacko versus, (laughs) versus a scientist 50, 50. And I think otherwise journalism is just, is is nonsense. It's pointless. Right. So, because then every, every opinion is just equal, no matter what your facts are, no matter your lack of facts and everybody who reads the Facebook post can come up and just you know say whatever the hell they want to and then there's no point then then actually tv news and journalism is gonna is gonna miseducate you rather than 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 inform you i'd rather people don't know about what's going on than to to 50 50 everything yeah i mean you know uh, the um, al jazeera um i i I must um you know uh, i must say uh, to the institution's credit as well as i think like tit world i mean you know, every media outlet has its own editorial remit or slant, but at least like, you know, my, my view is that, you know, an outlet like Al Jazeera, uh, that they, they tend to uh, basically uh, give the um, underdogs the platform, you know, to, uh, the, as opposed that's to important. Yes. say, you know, CNN or, you know, the, the BBC. Um, the, the recently, uh, uh, I, I guess like a, not too recent last year, um, the BBC um, you know breakfast talk show host uh, was censored by the BBC um, uh, the uh, watchdog or trust uh, for calling Donald Trump a racist. Yeah, and then right. I like, you know the, the, because of the uproar um, uh, for the BBC's um, you know administration's action, they 
the administration had to rescind the the, um, the censure. Um, you, you're talking about like okay, fifty fifty. Okay, you know, give Nazis fifty uh, percent of the platform, and then the the liberals. You know, and and um, you know, fairness is fine. Yeah, I mean, we both agree. But what about the uh, you know a certain set of values? I mean, you you know, none of us, I mean, no human or no human organization can afford to be value neutral. You know, we push, you know, uh, right. humanism over slavery, you know, and uh, that, that right. there is, there is a bias, yeah, uh, for, for better. And where does the, uh, the issue of value fit in, you know, when we are trying to do like, okay, get two different diametrically opposing quotes into a story? I think if we don't have a baseline of ethics and values, then there's no point to, to any of this. So I think it's really important. I have worked within situations um, where it has been difficult threading the needle because of political pressures and others where I've been you know, pressured to, to go particularly hard at someone or I've been pressured to um, give soft. somebody... A, yeah, to go soft on someone who deserves to be skewered, you know. So, yes, these are um, on their own in the in the individual circumstances. All of these these issues can be discussed for hours on end. But uh, I think that it is for me personally the way I've tried my best to approach the profession because I never really saw myself as like a journalist first. I saw myself as a storyteller who had a platform to. To, to have a commitment to truth, right? And so for me, I thought, okay, so there's a few different things going on here, depending on the context of the story. Either I'm talking to somebody supremely interesting who's going to add to the sum total of human knowledge and add value. So um, if it's, I remember speaking to this guy called Jaron Lanier, who said everybody must get rid of their social media. And he used to be, he was one of the founders at social um, in Silicon Valley. And so, so now just listening to this brilliant character explain why I'm never really going to, he hasn't killed anybody. He, he doesn't have the UN security council uh, up against him, but I'm listening to him to try and understand why he believes what he believes or someone like Yuval Noah Harari, when I speak to someone like that, I want to just learn from this historian um, because it would be in the public interest. On the other hand, there are those who are, who have been deliberately disenfranchised, marginalized, and so on. I, I, I believe and I, and I believed through my work that I needed to actively try harder to give them a voice, to give them an opportunity to, to speak out. So whether it is a Darfuri or whether it is a Rohingya or an activist on behalf of the Rohingya people, um, whether, you know, whether it's somebody from a, a protest movement, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter movement, because these people don't own the narrative and because they've got you know, massive resources and massive forces against them, I felt, okay, this is an opportunity to give them a chance to speak or somebody from a humanitarian organization saying, hey, I've just fished out 50 dead bodies from the Mediterranean, right? It's important for me to give that person a platform and to, to be respectful and honorable. And yes, sometimes if they say something that, that needs to be pushed back uh, on, I, I will do it. And then I think there are those 
who are um, who are in positions of power who need to be held to account. Now, for me, I've I've probably only ever been satisfied with less than thirty percent of my interviews of people in in power. There are times when I feel like I nailed it. There are times when I feel like okay, in a twenty-five minute interview, ten minutes were good, and for fifteen minutes I let let the guy off the hook. But I think that there's no point to journalism and there's no purpose to this if we cannot say the emperor has no clothes. If we cannot say, I'm sorry, you're saying this thing, but guess what? This human rights organization says that you're responsible for so many people dying. You have blood on your hands because that's a privilege and a responsibility that you have to be in that seat across from that person and you need to, you need to exercise it. And, and, and I was always unhappy with it. I mean, I guess it's like, I was, you know, I was the footballer who, even though like I might have had an assist or and a goal in a game, I'm like I'm not happy that I didn't get a hat trick, you know, and I'm I'm, I'm angry, you know. So I, I I would always see that as a good thing that I always felt um, I wasn't satisfied that I didn't challenge them hard enough or I or I wasn't sharp enough. Just very recently, I mean, one of my interviews I did um, uh, a bunch of months ago, I did with Alan Dershowitz about. Right. The, about the, 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 the American lawyer um, who represented yes, the American Trump lawyer and, and yeah, a lot of dodgy Donald, characters Donald Trump, Jeffrey Epstein, O.J. Simpson he has a, a, a hell of a list but so you know it, it, there's a lot of circumstantial and again I don't want Alan Dershowitz suing me by listening to this podcast I don't know if he listens to, <laughs> to your podcast but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and a lot of indications that, you know, he was entangled in, in, in the Epstein saga. Right? Yes, Not I, re- I read it in the Miami, Miami Herald. He was right. one of the, the persons so, named it. Exactly. So, so I did an interview with him about this and I did my reading. I, I, I did my reading. I read maybe generally for any interview. I mean, I read between 10 to 12 articles. I, 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 did, I, I watched a couple of interviews with, um, some of Epstein's victims. I went in, I did, I did an interview with him and he got very defensive and there was a bit of a you know, you know, back and forth ding dong. This, this is and, on TRT World Newsmaker? Yes, on, on TRT World, yes. Right. And a few months after that, now imagine, a, a few months after that, I was watching this Epstein documentary on Netflix, right, which is phenomenal. And this documentary... Uh, has more revelations, which would have been better weapons, I guess, to throw at, <laughs> at, at Professor right. Dershowitz. Now, obviously, it would be impossible. The, the documentary only came out after my interview, right? Mm. I, I could not possibly have known the things that were going to be in the documentary. But I sat on my sofa with this annoyance that I didn't have extra information to throw at him in that in that interview because i felt like oh my god you know this could have really you know put him on the spot and he he needed to be it's not because i want to destroy guests but he needed to be held to account for um for these claims right against him right you can't just wish them away and you can't just lawyer them i mean you you're the expert right you know how people lawyer out of these things and wiggle out of them so so i always had that and um i i always felt an extra sense of responsibility with powerful people. And, and that kind of drove me and, and, and fed the, the desire to, to do a good job, not just to hammer people for the sake of hammering them, but listen, there are people out there whose lives have been affected by this person. This person wields a lot of power. 
powerful people get away with a lot of shit in this world. Right. I'm going to do my best to ensure that I can, I can be fair. I can be respectful. But if this person needs to be held to account, it's my job to do that. It's my duty. It's like, yeah, I'm I mean, a, if, 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 like you, a, yeah, yeah. If, if you're doing a, a, you know, a really good job as a journalist, taking your own uh, responsibility seriously, you know, you, you kind of become the, the last resort for many of us uh, who don't have the regular platforms. You know what I mean? So it's, sure. it's like sure. your defense of the truth, the defense of like human values. It's important. So, and then, yeah. so what are the, um, you know, when you're interviewing, let's just say, you know, people, the Israeli IDF, uh, you know, uh, the spokesperson or, you know, uh, the, you know, others who defend um, uh, the various crimes against humanity, including genocide or like, you know, corporate crimes uh, or like, you know, the genocide or crime deni denialist. Uh, um, what are the extra challenges that, that you have? Because you're, you're dealing with people that completely do not share your, you know, compassion or empathy for the, um, for the, for the oppressed. So there are a few things, uh, a few challenges. Number one is that to get into that position, these are not stupid people, right? Generally they're chosen. Uh, generally they've, they've been through, the hopes and they've done enough in their careers and their lives, whether through ideological affinity with the thing that they're defending or through just being really smart and maybe being opportunists or, or maybe being good at communicating, they've had to compete with a lot of people to get to that position. So you're not dealing with low IQ people. You're dealing with people who also know how to, to wield power in, in tiny dynamics, in small ways. I mean, military generals and so on, it's very fascinating you, if you sit with them in a face-to-face in, in -face interview. They do these small little tricks where they'll say something about your tie being crooked or something. They just, you know, just it unnerves you a little. Off. Throws you off, it makes you feel little, it makes you feel a little insecure, right? So it's small little things, right? So, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, you need to have your, you need to really have your facts backed up. You, whatever you say, whatever you ask needs to be backed up by, by fact. So for example, if I say, well, you've been accused of crimes against humanity and the guy goes, says who? I need to know who. And he says, uh, which year? And, uh, you know, in which court? What are you talking about? Where'd you get that from? I need to know that. And it's not stuff that you can always just have on a piece of paper in front of you. So you need to really trust, you need to arm yourself with knowledge before and then absorb as much as possible before. And so that was really important to me. Uh, I felt like I'm, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do this and I need to make sure that I know my stuff. And sometimes if they make a good point, you have to concede. Okay, fair enough. What I found um, difficult here, which um, was, was that people pushed back because TRT is public funded by the Turkish taxpayer. The easiest uh, counterattack was always, well, your president, Erdogan, and no, oh, Turkey does this and Turkey. And so for me, I, I didn't, uh, I just, I tried to keep them on track and said that we're not here to talk about Turkey. We have shows on Turkey and the legal system here and the referendum and the elections and this and that and whatever and the military operations. I'm here to talk about you and what you're responsible for. 
And so that's one of the things that you, if you take that bait, because as you, as you mentioned also, right, every media organization, Al Jazeera has its, its red lines and its complications, TRT World, uh, you know, wherever, even the, the BBCs and so on. People love to use that as a counterattack and they want you to get into a, an argument with them over, over that. Dershowitz did that very often. Uh, a lot of people did that very often. And so for me, I mean, funny enough, some people used to think that I was a Turkish news anchor as well. Right. So they'd go like, you're president. And I go, who? Ramaphosa? <laughs> you know? right. But um, so I think you're dealing not just with, you're, you're dealing not just with the issue, but you're dealing with ego. You're dealing with very powerful, uh, usually, I mean, you, you, have some, you have some strong female leaders, yes, but you're dealing with also like the alpha male in right. the room who's trying to project that kind of power, who's, right. who's surrounded by yes men constantly. Right. Um, and so here's an, these people often are a force of nature, right? And so you have to kind of be able to, you, you have to create a shield around yourself. And one of the things I always found as a, as a rule for myself is that I never wanted to ever socialize with the the powerful people that I interviewed. And right. there was always, there was often, there was sometimes a temptation for that. So, right. so for example, you interview a politician and it's like, oh, let me take your number. Oh, let me invite you to this thing. And we're having this thing at the embassy and oh, come and hang out. And, and I had seen with, when I was younger in, in this industry, I had seen older anchors who, who became a part of that scene. Right. Became poly, a part of poly. that elite that they were interviewing. Yeah, so they're hanging out with the politicians. And then it's just a game. They're like, okay, I'll challenge you with a couple of questions. And then I'm going to ask you this and that. But they were all friends, right? They're all friends. Yeah, they, yeah. they hung out. They, you know, they, they, they partied together. And so I saw that at a young age. I saw that with, with, with some of the older anchors. And I was like, I'll never become one of those people. Yeah, right? otherwise I, you lose your, you you lose your edge. First thing, because I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't also I don't like that world. Like it's not mine. Like I like right, to right. you know, I, 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 I get you. and talk I get you. with my kids. And, yeah. yeah. So I get you. yeah, I, I think that that kept a distance for me. Right, right. Um, you you must also know uh, Mehdi Hassan, yeah, uh, the, yeah. in Washington, and um, you know you uh, you guys are um, probably like contemporary. Maybe he's uh, slightly older. Um, you know he's um, I've I've done like you know. Um, quite a number of uh, interviews and um, um, you know the media appearances with the, on different channels and I actually find um, both you and Mehdi um, you know um, extremely um, principled and compassionate and uh, you know Mehdi is a, a, a non-polite version of you put it that way and well, yeah, uh, he's, he's ferocious he's 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 I, I would say he's much more ferocious and um uh, oh, I he guess, is so I'm so a, in your face. You know what I mean. I'm a soft. He, I'm a very soft touch compared to him. Yeah. <laughs> so no, the, uh, well, I mean, you know, there there are pros and cons, but that you you always right, right. Um, you know, uh, but do you find yourself um, holding back out of you know um, a sense of civility, as opposed to many who would Sometimes. just go for it? You know, go for the jugular. And then I, I, I like the fact that he does it because he's dealing with like, you know, right. guys who would defend and deny basically some of the worst atrocity crimes in the world. And you need someone like Mehdi 
to really unrattle these cards. Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's down to a bunch of things. I mean, one of them is personality, and sometimes I I've felt like I'm not prosecutorial enough for this job, and you know, because because the thing with me is sometimes even if somebody is really defending the worst of the worst, if they say something, the way my brain works, I go hmm, and I spin it a little bit, and I want to kind of follow up on it out of curiosity. Right. Continue to have yeah, it. yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, so I think, so I think, I think Matty has that, that like Matty is like, he was he was created in a in a lab to grill people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think test you, baby, come, um, you know, this from Russia <laughs> stuff. But I mean, it's like you know, I admire yeah. him as well. And so, um, um, okay, you're working on um, your second novel. Um, can you share yes. some, um, you know, hints about what this novel? And I, I really hope that 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 would be a, a greater success than the previous one. Uh, the the Thunder Rose obviously is I hope successful. So, yeah. Um, yeah. What what well, is the, it about the, the second Rose novel? Won an award, which I'm grateful for, but it didn't make me it didn't make me rich. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the second one, um, which of course. I haven't I haven't started writing yet, but it it has a lot to do with if if the thunder that roars was about um, identity and and displacement and migration, the thunder that roars um, that that was the thunder that roars. The second one is going to be uh, more about faith and doubt, um, and something that's very dear to me is the concept of the prospect of you know belief, religious belief, uh, belief in God, community you know, deep faith and so on. And so um, the main characters is somebody who's very deeply um, invested in, in belief and has an entire system around him that is based on, on that unshakable belief. And the premise is what happens when he starts to have doubts right. in his own faith? And, um, and I've always wondered this. I mean, it's always been something I've been curious about throughout my life where, I mean, whether it's a political ideology or religious ideology, I've always wondered, like I've looked at people and wondered like, does this, I mean, the person who's the most vehement, hardcore believer, whether they're like a Marxist or a Muslim um, or, a, or, you know, or a Buddhist, or a BJP Hindu nationalist, what if this person deep down actually has doubts? How would they deal with it? Are they too deeply invested in, in this whole architecture of life where their livelihood, their social community, everything is related to this, so they just have to kind of bury it? Um, or would they actually manifest it and go, actually, I'm, I'm not sure I believe anymore. I'm having, I'm having some trouble with this. So without giving too much away, that's the, that's at the, that's at the heart of it. What happens when a powerful person deeply invested in something of immense uh, belief starts to have doubts? So well, that's I mean, my that is, it's, it's only, um, you know, um, um, healthy and natural and human to hold, uh, you know, uh, a degree of self-doubt. You know, not, not in, in, you know, not, right. this is different from lacking confidence by you, you know, like, you know, I've been right. an activist for 30 years and, you know, uh, but, uh, I always um, 
even when I'm like, you know, espousing anything with the supreme confidence, <laughs> uh, uh. in my in the back of my head, um, what if I'm wrong? You know what I mean? Right. Every single right. confident statement that I make is accompanied by that, you know, maybe 5%. But, but without that 5%, you are a prisoner of your own faith and beliefs. And, and that, then, then you're finished. Absolutely. There is no room for uh, essentially self-correction. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, all the atrocities uh, that uh, you have covered or I have taken an interest or, uh, in. Uh, the, the, these are um, the, the uh, you know the the result of uh, having no self-correction, or you know the system's yeah. no longer able to self-correct, and then that's when we end up with wars and atrocities. You know what I mean? Uh, the, uh, so, um, but I think th um, is there any final thought? Um, we are approaching one hour mark, and it's um, any any parting thoughts? Um. um well i mean uh, I, i'm going to throw it back sort of in your direction related to the work that we did but i will say uh you were always our chief interview producer simonetta's favorite guest she loved to call you onto the show uh she always would suggest we need we need zani for this we need zani for this and you were also among our team, one of our favorite uh, people to have on the show because you brought knowledge and passion and uh, it wasn't activism that was empty. It was activism that, that was really rooted in a, in a sense of great dignity. And it wasn't about yourself. It was about the people who are affected by genocidal policies um, from, from Myanmar's government. So uh, that's why... I was so excited and so happy when you invited me to the podcast. I told Simonetta and she's listening to this and she's really excited. So it's really a privilege and an honor. I thank you so much. No, no, th thanks so much. And it, it's, it, you know, the, the pleasure and the honors are mutual. And so I was very happy. I told my wife, you know, when you say yes, say, yeah, I scored. Yeah, you know, it's as if like I'm in the media. Imran <laughs> say yes, and I say, I scored. And so, oh, well, thanks so much. And uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. And I'll, I'll let you know when um, th this will be uh, a broadcast. Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah. Thank you so much. And you have a, Absolutely. a Looking forward good to rest of the day. Thank you. Bye, Imra. Thank you, Zani. All the best to you. Bye-bye.